Good morning, church. It is uh, good to be with you. Is this the second day in a row of sunshine? Outside, is it just really, really nice out there to see blue sky and fresh, clear air and all of this. Um, Really, really good. And good to be with you uh, one week away. And I missed you. And it's good to be back with you. There's certain rhythms that uh, we have, and you kind of forget about some of those uh, rhythms. Obviously, there's a rhythm of gathering every Sunday morning. I haven't forgot about that. But for example, almost every Sunday, I have a conversation with Felicity. She just going to Sunday school? Where is she? Like, like she's in first grade, and just like every Sunday, her mom's up practicing here on worship team, and we just like talk every Sunday. And, you know, I missed that last Sunday. So I, I miss some of you too, but I missed... Felicity missed uh, talking with her, and it's good to see her this morning. In last week's passage, uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7, Paul was dealing with a really practical problem. If we go back to the first century, and we go back to these few house churches at that time, no cathedrals, no buildings like this, a few churches few congregations that met in homes, few churches that met in homes, and they had a problem. And one of the problems that they had that Paul was addressing in last week's text was they, did really, they really did not want to pay taxes, especially to this immoral and overbearing government. I mean, who could relate to that, Right? So Paul addresses that issue, and maybe to their surprise, he addresses it with really strong language. And to summarize, not only does he say you need to pay your taxes to this overbearing government, but God has established this government. Indeed, God has established all governments, and you need to submit To that government. You could summarize last week's unit by saying, uh, make sure you have no debt whatsoever to the state, to the government, to the Roman Empire. Then what Paul does as he transitions to this week's unit of Scripture, uh, he takes this idea of having no debt to approach this idea of one never-ending debt that Christ followers have. In the very best possible terms, you and I, as Christ followers, have a debt that we are never going to lose. And so he links this, hey, have no debt before the Roman authorities, to this idea of there's one debt you're never going to get away from. And this one never-ending debt is to love one another. In the best possible way, this is a debt that you and I have that never ends. And so I want to begin today, like I do sometimes with a sermon, in giving you the conclusion, the two concluding summary statements. Then we're going to go through the sermon, and I'm going to preach the sermon. But here are the two concluding statements. Number one, you will never be in a position to say, I no longer need to love others. 
That is what is described as the never-ending debt in today's passage of Scripture, which we're going to look at in just a moment. You're never going to be in this position to say, I'm done. It is a forever position, a forever debt, if you will, to use the language of Romans 13, that you and I have to love one another. It is a beautiful debt. It is a debt in the very best possible meaning of that word. And then second summary statement before I preach the sermon. You guys okay with that, with me like giving you the summary statements before we preach it? At least maybe two of you say yes or say something. So I got a few nods there. So here's the second statement. God will never stop supplying the grace you need to love others. There is a debt that remains to love one another, and God will supply the grace that you need to love others. That is what this text we're about to look at is all about. One never ending debt. Well, let's get into today's passage and take a look at verse 8. Let me read verse 8 to you again. It was just read, but let me read it again. Uh, I'm reading now from the NIV. It says in verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man or he who loves one another has fulfilled the law, has fulfilled the Torah, has fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, which he's about to quote a few of the the commandments of the Torah in just a moment. You want to fulfill the law, you love one another. So that's verse 8. Now I want to take some time and talk about the very first phrase in verse 8 which in the NIV says, let no debt remain outstanding, which is a very good translation. It's somewhat of an interpretive translation. It's somewhat of a translation that says, what does this mean? And let's convey this meaning to the reader rather than a a more literal or grammatical translation that says, what are the words here? And let's just give them these words and they figure it out on their own. So a more literal translation would be the way the ESV has the beginning of verse 8 which says in the ESV, owe no one anything. Which in Texas, they might say something like, owe no one nothing, right? I mean, it almost sounds weird to me a little bit, owe no one anything. Owe no one anything. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this first phrase of verse 8 because of my own history and my own experience with this. Now, I don't know if you've had this experience with this phrase from this verse of Scripture or not, but this has been my experience, in fact, going back many years. And so some people understand the beginning of verse 8, owe no one anything, to have implications for our financial stewardship as believers. And so some, and I've been impacted by this teaching, both personally and when I was a young man, and and in other ways from Christians that I know, who would say, oh, no one anything, means you cannot, as a Christ follower, for example, take out a car loan. You can't take out a mortgage. It says, oh, no one anything. Very literal, grammatical translation here. So, so we're going to have an investigation here into your finances, 
before you go home today, and we're going to find out if any of you have taken out car loans or home loans. I'm just kidding. That wasn't in the manuscript. I shouldn't kid, right? Um, you might guess by my just kidding that that is not what this text is intending to communicate. This is not a verse primarily talking about financial stewardship or whom we should or shouldn't take loans out to. That is not what this passage is about. Although I know some people not only understand it to mean that, but they have, it has literally, their interpretation of this verse has changed their lives to the point where they would not take out a home loan and live in a certain way and, and so on because of this text. So let's just back up a little bit. What is this text getting at? Let me I put verses 7 and 8 on the screen here from the ESV. Let me just read it. Pay to all what is owed. Back to this problem that they were experiencing in the first century. The problem is what is owed to the Roman authorities. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. In other words, if you're supposed to respect the, the, the emperor, show him respect. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything then is a summary of what has just come prior. And these words are actually linked grammatically. I put them in yellow. Owe and what is owed. Let me just read it to you in uh, the Greek New Testament. The two words here, they're what we call catchwords. Ophelos and ophelite. Those are the two words that are translated here in yellow, which the ESV does a great job of showing in English how these are related. These two words. Whatever is owed to, to the state, to the government, give it to them. Uh, owe none of them uh, taxes or honor or whatever. When the IRS knocks on your door as a believer, you can say, yeah, I, I've, I've paid. I've paid in full. That is Paul's instruction to the church in Rome, and that is his instruction to us today. So this is not a passage that says it is a sin to take out a loan. It might be wise. It may be unwise to take out a loan. That's not what is it being addressed here. In fact, take a look with me at Matthew 5.42, where Jesus says to us, give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. As Christ followers, if we have resources, Jesus commands us to give those resources or to loan those resources away. It is not true to say that the New Testament prohibits borrowing. This all, of course, is not the primary meaning or the primary intent of the verses that we're dealing with, but I wanted to address this phrase at the beginning of verse 8 and my own experience because I have um, experienced that false teaching, if you will, or incorrect teaching. So all that to say, use extreme caution when isolating a text from its context. Now, we memorize verses and we sometimes draw a phrase or a passage out from the Bible. That's a good thing. But not when we take it out and divorce it from the rest of the, the section of Scripture that it's in and we have the wrong understanding of what it means. So we need to use extreme caution when we see uh, a phrase like, oh, no one, anything. We need to understand everything that is going on there. So 
since we went back into this, if you were not here last week, you already know this if you were here last week, but for those of you that weren't here last week, Romans 13, 1-7 is so strong. Condemnation upon you as a Christ follower if you don't submit to the governing authorities. And so Chris dealt with these many exceptions to this situation, and he brought many of those up. I just want to refer one of, one of them. So if you're here today and you weren't here last week, you might be saying, well, are there limits to how we show respect or how we show honor to the state? And of course, there are limits and exceptions to that. One of the ones that Chris brought up was in Exodus chapter 1. It says there in verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt, what the state, had told them to do. They let the boys live. The state had commanded that Hebrew male babies were to be killed. And so there's a conflict that arises between with what God says and with what the state says. And when there is a conflict between with what God says and with what the state says, we follow the Lord. When a civil authority commands what God forbids, God is obeyed. The state is regarded. And Chris gave many other examples in his sermon last week of this. John Stott writes this. He says, the principle is clear. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. The examples we have in Scripture, the exceptions, are examples where you cannot obey God in the state. When that is the situation, we obey God. Maybe one of the clearest examples of this is in Acts chapter 4, which isn't to a civil authority, but to a religious authority, the Sanhedrin. Then the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious authority that worked under Rome, called them in again, Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. No, they are going to obey God, and they are going to teach in the name of Jesus, and they are going to proclaim the gospel. It doesn't matter what the state says when it's very clear what the scriptures say to us. So use extreme caution when isolating a text from a context that's related to the financial stewardship issue, which is often brought into this text that doesn't really belong to this text. We want to look at others. And then also we need to recognize in this very strong passage, Romans 13, 1 through 7, that there are exceptions to submitting to the state. And we see those in scripture as well. Let's get now to the main emphasis of today's unit of Scripture, very short, eight, verses 8 through 10. And that is this one debt that remains outstanding to love one another. So this is the contrast that's made. Back to verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. This is a large part of how God has called us to live what he has called us to be as Christ followers are lovers of one another, something that doesn't end in us. Take a look at John chapter 13. Jesus says this there. He's talking to the 12. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. 
so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is a radical new teaching that Jesus is giving. As we think of this teaching, we might ask the question, well, in what way is this new, loving one another? Um, in, in just a few verses here, he quotes Leviticus 19 and loving our neighbor as ourself. This doesn't seem like a new command. So the careful reader of John 13 is going to ask the question, well, in what way is this command new? What Jesus is saying in John 13, which is related to what is going on in Romans 13 and verse 8. And the way that it is a new command, the way in which this is a new command, I've highlighted in yellow here, is the way that Jesus has loved the twelve. And what has Jesus just done in John chapter 13? Church, what is he? What, he just washed their feet. He just reversed what Christian leadership, what leadership in general is supposed to be all about. It's about servanthood. It's about weakness. It's about God being glorified through you serving one another by doing lowly acts of service and loving one another in radical, humble ways. As I have loved you is referring both to lowly acts of service like foot washing in the first century and also about what Jesus, what the foot washing is pointing to, about what Jesus is about to do, which is die on a cross. This is the kind of love we are called to have for one another. This is the one debt that remains in the best possible way we can talk about a debt remaining is to love one another in these ways, the kind of love where we would be willing to lay our lives down for someone else, where we are willing to do nasty, dirty jobs. This is the new command I give you. This is what Christian leadership, what Christian life is all about. This is the one debt that remains. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. This fulfills the law. Look with me at 1 John 4.8. It says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. May that, you've heard this before, you've read this before, may this hit you afresh today. God is love and He has made us to follow Him. He has made us like Him. He has made us in His image. He has made us to be lovers and He's made us to be lovers in special ways where we're willing to lay down our lives for each other and do dirty jobs for each other and serve each other so that the world will see Christ in us. That is the one debt that remains. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. He created us in His image. We, His image bearers, have been given the ability to love in extraordinary ways by His grace and by His Spirit. And this is what He is calling us to today in Romans 13, Romans 13 8-10. One never-ending debt. Christ followers are a never-ending cascade of love to one another. 
a never-ending cascade. You know, I was able to get out on a mountain bike ride uh, yesterday, and the waterfalls um, are cascading in all sorts of places where they have been dry, and the water is flowing, and it is just beautiful. Anybody seen these creeks, seen the waterfalls? Have you been outside? Anybody? Just me. A few of you have. We have all these seasonal streams and seasonal waterfalls, and they are cascading now. And what Romans 13 is saying is that we are to never stop cascading. When you feel like, I can't love him or her or them anymore, God wants to supply you with his strength so that you can continue to love in extraordinary ways and for the cascade of love to flow from you to others so that people will see the beauty of our Father in heaven and our Lord and Savior and glorify Him. It's not only within the church, of course, that we are to love one another, but jump your eyes down to verse 9 in Romans 13. At the end of verse 9, it says, Love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19. And we know from Jesus teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan that our neighbor is anyone who is in need, especially someone proximate to us who is in need. That is our neighbor. So we are called not only to love one another as believers, but to, to, but to love anyone, believer, unbeliever, whoever they are, for the sake of the gospel, to love our, our neighbors as ourselves. And so God is calling you to do this no matter what your daily life is like. If you're retired and you have literal neighbors, you do, you're called to love them. If you're working as you go about your job, you have a job to do at your job, and I hope you do that well, but you have something more important than your job to do at your job, and that is to love those around you as a Christian witness, to love those neighbors at work. For almost 30 years now, uh, my wife has been uh, loving her patients and their parents. I've been praying for her for almost 30 years to love for her, by God's grace, to love her patients and their parents. Some of her patients are, are really little, like you could lay them down here on the, on the pulpit. And uh, recently, many of them have been sick and have had fevers, have had COVID, babies with COVID with fevers who won't eat. And so you have mothers and fathers who are stressed out, who are weeping, who are in her office. Now it's important that she practices good medicine, helps that baby be restored to health. But what's even more important than that from an eternal perspective, from a biblical perspective, is that she loves those patients and parents, as a Christian, as a Christian witness, that is even more important. So that is what I have been praying for her as she interacts with her patients and her parents 
So whatever you might be doing, teaching, you own a business, whatever it is, you have a job to do there. But you have a greater job to love those around you as you love yourself as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the one debt that remains that we will never get away from. We will never lose. So I could put a whole bunch of definitions on the screen about love. By this point, we might want to be asking, well, what does love look like? What actually is love? It's one of these things that is difficult to define. You know where I'm about to read. Many of you, I've just flipped ahead a few pages here. Would you just listen to this and pray for the Lord to give you a beautiful and longing heart to love your neighbors, to love those within the church, to love those in your small group, to love those discipleship partners that you have, to love everyone endlessly, the one remaining debt that you have. So listen to this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, of course, goes on. I would encourage you today, if you're not busy reading other passages, to read 1 Corinthians 13 and pray over that and pray over this one debt that never ends this joyful, beautiful, wonderful debt for you and I to love one another and to love our neighbors. Christ followers are a never-ending cascade of love to one another. Final couple verses here. Let's look at them together, 9 and 10, and we'll be done here in just a few moments. So verse 9, the commandments. He's just mentioned law. Law here, not referring to principle, but referring to the commandments, referring to Torah, referring to Old Testament law. How do you know that, Mike? Why isn't this principle? Well, right after the word law, within just a few characters, he begins to cite the law. So I think the law is referring to the law. Are you with me, church? This is sophisticated stuff I'm giving you here. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up 
in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a little homework assignment for you. So I, I just, you know, I have to say this. I, you know, some people would say you should cut that out of your sermon, but here it is. So why does Paul quote commandments 7, 6, 8, 10? So maybe one of you can call me this week and help me out. with. I mean, I get why he quoted these commandments. These are horizontal commandments. They're, they're relating to others. They fit with the one another. But especially, why does he go 7, 6, 8, 10? Okay, so that's your, you guys good with that? Somebody going to get back to me this week and help me figure that one out. I, I couldn't figure that one out, why he, why he does that order. So it, you already have the answer? Oh, an algorithm. All right, well, run the algorithm. Get back with me this week. Okay. So anyway, where are we? Back to the text here. So he goes to the commandments. He cites these commandments that have to do with how we relate to one another. They're summed up in this ancient commandment, Leviticus. And then verse 10, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So just a couple comments here. Um, The first one, actually, from Thomas Schreiner, he writes this. He says, if one begins to focus on the commands and loses sight of love, then rigidity and legalism are sure to follow. And so we have two errors here. One is to err on the side of following the commandments and missing out on love. The other error is to focus on what is called love but is really a false love, a sentimental love that our progressive, liberal, California, secular culture, which is worse than, I was just discouraged to hear, I mean, encouraged but discouraged by Carissa's comments about how unreached our nation is. But our state is particularly unreached with the gospel. And so the culture of our state has a view of love, many of our neighbors, that are completely divorced from any objective truth or reality, certainly divorced from the scriptures. So biblical love has both this affection, this kindness, this tenderness, this patience, but it also has lines of moral ethics and commandments. These go together, and we don't want to be on just one side or the other. We want to understand love in the context of ethical commandments and what God has called us to. So Christian love, unlike the love of the world, Christian love and God's commandments, they go together. If you ignore truth, if you ignore the scriptures and try to have this love that just, yeah, just love, like you do whatever you want, I do whatever I want, she does whatever he wants, we'll make up our own definitions about what everything is and and you just love. That is a false love. That is not a real love. That is a, a bankrupt, pitiful kind of love. And we need to delicately communicate with some of our neighbors, maybe long before we communicate the gospel even, that this kind of love is is not really love. It doesn't work. Christian love and God's commandments, 
they go together, and we need to be careful not to be on either side. We have a culture that is saying it embraces love, but it has redefined fundamental aspects of of life, of marriage, of gender, of so on. That is not love, to just redefine what God has done and what he calls us to and how he has made us as male and female in his image, for example. Well, let's finish up here with where we began, with these two concluding statements. You and I will never be in a position to say, I no longer need to love others. It is the one debt that remains and actually continues with us on into the new heavens and new earth. We're going to continue to love God. We're going to continue to love one another on and on for eternity, forever and ever and ever. You will never be in a position to say, I no longer need to love others. And then secondly, God will never stop supplying the grace you need to love others. And as we close today, this may be where you need to pray or where you need to think. The Lord may have brought a person or a group or whomever to mind, a neighbor, that you need his grace, you need his help, you need his spirit to actually love them the way that Christ loved the 12, including Judas. He washed Judas' feet. He invited Judas to dinner. He didn't exclude him. I mean, he excluded himself and took off. God wants us to love everyone, particularly one another as believers, to show God's great love to the world, but he promises to supply us with what we need in many places. And one of those is in Isaiah 41, which says, So do not fear, for I am with you. The Lord will help you love others if you seek him and ask him do not be dismayed for i am your god i will strengthen you and help you i will uphold you with my righteous right hand let's pray together father in heaven we thank you for this beautiful mission that you've given us to make disciples and at the heart of this mission is for us to be lovers, to be lovers with the commandments of God, with these commandments that Paul cited in today's passage that that transcend the old covenant and the new covenant. So Lord, make us lovers of your word, of your laws, but in light of today's passage, especially make us lovers of one another, Make us lovers of those in need and help us to not give up, but to continue those, continue loving those who need it the most in our spheres of influence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.